You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Thank you, Audrey. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be in the verses that uh, Audrey just read for us. If you are uh, new here, welcome to Citizens. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, I know it's a a holiday weekend, and maybe you're visiting with family. We're so glad that you are here. If you're watching online, wherever you are, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, well, tell, let me tell you why we are in 1 Corinthians 11 this morning. Um, most of the sermons that are preached here, and most of the sermons that, you know, that I preach here, they fall uh, within a larger series. So like last week, we wrapped up a series that we called In Christ. And I preach the last sermon of that series. Next week, we'll start Advent, and I'll preach the first sermon of that series. And so most of my weeks, just to let you give you a little window into my world, most of the weeks, I know what to preach next because of what's next in the series, right? If we're in a book of the Bible, then it's what's the next verse. If we're in a series like the one we were just in, that's more of like a, a unpacking a theological issue. It's like, what have we not said that really needs to be said? But every now and then, we have a Sunday that is not in a series, uh, because we are in between series like this Sunday. And we call those Sundays standalone Sundays because we preach uh, a sermon that is not connected to other sermons. It just it stands alone. And you're probably asking, Jamin, well, how do you decide what to preach on standalone Sundays? I know that's like the burning question in your heart. It's what got you out of bed this morning. Um, here's the answer. There, there's two kinds of standalone sermons that I'll preach. Um, <clears throat> there's a kind where there's a passage of Scripture that I think is just especially worth revisiting. It's something that I want to stick in my heart, something that I really want to stick in your heart, and for it to stick, we need to return to it. It's something that we need to be reminded of. So Psalm 27 is one of those. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to be with God. Um, If I think about uh, John 21, Jesus restoring Peter to ministry, there's just so much unconditional restorative love there. It's one that I love to to go back to over and again. If I think about Ecclesiastes and just the message of Ecclesiastes, that in this hevel world, the only way to to live wisely in the hevel is to treat life as a gift, to receive life as a gift. If I think about Proverbs, like Proverbs 12, uh, 16 says, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the wise quietly holds back. Uh, Part of following Jesus is growing in wisdom, and part of wisdom is being emotionally healthy, and it's foolish to be easily offended. If I think of Colossians 1, 15 through 21, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It's this song about Jesus that is just so rich and wonderful. There is, at least in my heart, uh, a list of passages that I'm always looking for an opportunity to preach again and again, and again. And when a standalone sermon comes up, um, I'll always think through, can we go back to one of these? Then there's another category, and it's passages or or theological topics that we've just never talked about before, and that I've never taught on for for one reason or another. And that's a long list. So I started preaching regularly here at Citizens in April of 2019. So it's been uh, four years and five months since I've been uh, the preacher here. And I have a way of taking a series that could be a month and making it several months to a year, and so, which I, I feel good about. But what that means is it means it keeps us at certain places in the Bible for a long time, which means there's a lot of things that we need to talk about that we just haven't talked about in this space. So here's what we're going to do this morning. 
I'm going to read a list of options and let you vote on which sermon you I'm not going to do that. I love you. I just don't trust you to do that. Um, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to consider what the Bible teaches about communion. And this falls in the category of something that I've, I've never taught on here in our time together. Uh, we observe communion every single Sunday. Uh, this sermon ends this morning with those who are serving communion, standing up and passing out communion to you. And we do that every week here. So I guess in some ways it's the thing that I've talked about most, but we've never devoted an entire uh, sermon to it. And because we observe it every Sunday and because communion is something that is practiced differently in other churches and people believe different things about it, we actually get a lot of questions about why we do communion the way that we do communion here. So like, why do we do it every Sunday? Why do we ask non-Christians to not take communion? What does it mean for a Christian to take communion? And so in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, it's, it's the longest teaching on communion in the Bible. It's written to a church that is some of the people in the church are not honoring Jesus and they're not honoring one another in the way that they're taking communion. And so Paul writes, most of it is a rebuke, um, but in the rebuke you get these really beautiful truths about what communion is and, uh, and what believers are invited into every time that we take communion. So I named three things that I want to share with you. There are three things that communion invites in the life of the Christian. It invites the Christian to look back in faith. It invites the Christian to examine your heart. And it invites the Christian to look forward in hope. Look back in faith. Examine your heart. Look forward in hope. Look at verse 23 with me. For I received from the Lord... What I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, um, that word given thanks in Greek is Eucharisto, which is why some people call it Eucharist. We're not going to spend any time on that. I just think it's just a great fact. Um, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The phrase that begins verse 23, I received from the Lord, it means that Jesus gave us this ordinance. He gave us this practice. So where did the idea of communion come from? Who started it? Jesus. There's two uh, sacraments, two ordinances that Jesus gave to his people. One is baptism. It's something that you do once in your life with Jesus. The other is communion. It's something that you do often in your life with Jesus. And here's how it started. Paul tells the story. He says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, well, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he's eating a, a very specific meal with his disciples. What meal is he eating? You can say it out loud. Passover, very good. He's eating Passover meal with his disciples, and Passover is the Jewish meal that remembers the story of the Exodus. And the Exodus story is the central salvation story of the Old Testament. Uh, it's Moses against Pharaoh. It's the God of Israel against the gods of Egypt. And you remember the story. God rescues his people from slavery. He defeats Egypt. He delivers his people. And, and on the night of the, the Passover, uh, the Israelites put blood on their doorpost because they were not sinless. They were also sinful. But God, in his mercy, passed over their homes, saved them, led them through the sea into the wilderness. And every year since that happened, uh, the people of God, the Jewish people, they would have a meal 
to remember what God did. It was called the Passover meal. Well, by the time that Jesus is eating this meal with his disciples, it had become this beautiful, multifaceted ritual dinner that they ate in the exact same way every year. There was um, songs that they would sing. There were things that they would recite. There were verses that they would say. There was a whole liturgy that they would, that they would celebrate and remember together. And that all happened. That whole liturgy played out around bread and around different cups of wine. And so here's what happened. In the middle of this Passover meal that Jesus and his followers were used to taking the exact same way every single year, Jesus takes the bread and there was a thing that they would say about the bread every year that pointed back to the Exodus. But instead of saying that thing, Jesus takes the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you, which had to have been incredibly disruptive to a people that are used to hearing it the same way every time. And then he takes the cup and there was something that was said about the cup for thousands of years that pointed back to the Exodus. Um, and instead of saying that, Jesus says, this is the cup uh, of the new covenant that is my blood. So here's what he's doing. Jesus is taking the Passover meal and he's reinterpreting it and reorienting it around himself. It's no longer about what God did in the Exodus. It's now about what the Exodus was always pointing to, which is God's great deliverance, not through the Passover lamb, but through the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, centered around the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And so this replaced the Passover meal for the people of God. Uh, many Jewish Christians still observed Passover and some still do, but because uh, this is the central salvation story now. It's no longer the Exodus. The central salvation story for Christians is Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and communion became the central way that Christians remembered and celebrated that. And instead of it happening once a year, it happens every time they gather. Why? Think about this. Jesus is with his disciples. He's about to be betrayed and then arrested and then beaten and then crucified. And, and something in him says, before all that happens, it's really important to me and really important for my friends and followers, both now and in the future, for them to have this tactile way to remember all of this together. I want them to literally tear bread and think of my torn body. And I want them to literally drink together and think of my blood that was shed. And, and all of that is to, is to take them back to these things that are happening. And Paul says, I received this from the Lord. It's a command. Why does Jesus command that we do this? Because he wants us to look back in faith so that we might look back on what he has done for us as a forgetful people, as a distracted people, that we would look back on the death and resurrection of our Savior, and we would say, it was for me. It was for me. Uh, there's a kind of clarity that is supposed to come in communion. In Luke 24, I find this very interesting. Jesus is risen in Luke 24, and there's some disciples that are walking from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus, and Jesus walks with them, and they don't recognize him, and they talk the whole way. It's a seven-mile trip, and they're doubting, and Jesus shows them through the entire Old Testament that everything happened that has happened has had to happen to the Messiah, that he's the Messiah. They still don't get it. They still don't know it's him. And then here's what happens in Luke 24, 30 and 31. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Had gone this whole trip and didn't know that it was Jesus. 
They get to a table. They see him break bread, and it was in that moment that they saw him for who he is. There's this kind of faith moment that happens, and that kind of thing is supposed to happen for us around the bread and the cup every single Sunday, is that every single Sunday we see Jesus. Like, I've said this before, but communion is the most participatory thing that we do on a Sunday. Uh, You can choose to not sing, and some don't. Uh, You can check out right now while I'm talking, and some do. But there is something incredibly intrusive in the best way about communion. You literally have to make a decision about whether to hold the cup or not, whether to take the bread and to take the juice or not. And the point is, is that it's this moment that Jesus has created as a moment of clarity for you and for me that we would see him, that if we've somehow gathered together and gone through all of the things that we go through together on a Sunday morning, and if somehow we've missed him in all of that, he's created this moment for us to see him clearly. Here's what's remarkable. Paul is talking about the night that Jesus first uh, taught about communion and took communion, um, and Paul was not there that night. Paul was somewhere being a Pharisee, feeling really great about himself. The Corinthians that he's writing to, they were not there that night. But he takes, in this passage, he takes the word that Jesus spoke to those who were there and applies it to himself and applies it to them and applies it to us as if we were there because everything that Jesus said to them is true for us. So the communion invitation is the invitation to imagine. I just think this is beautiful. The communion invitation is to imagine that Jesus is at the table with you and he holds the bread across the table from you, and he says, this is my body broken for you. You know all that brokenness in you that you can't do anything about? My body was broken to put you back together. And, and, and Jesus holds the cup across the table from you and says, you know the love that you've longed for but you can't find and you'll never be able to earn? The new covenant is the steadfast love of God for you, never ending, never stopping, always and forever, and it's because my blood was shed for you and it washes over you. So the invitation is to look back in faith and to participate in what Jesus has done, to look back, to personalize it. Jesus died for me as if we were there. This is why we ask people who are not Christians to not take communion. Um, Sometimes my youngest daughter will put on Carrie, my wife, uh, she'll put on Carrie's wedding ring, and she'll look at me and she'll say, Dad, I'm married. And um, and a small part of me dies every time she does that. Um, Now, she does it now to be funny, but there was a time when she would do that where we did have to explain to her, just to make sure she wasn't confused, that wearing the ring doesn't make her married, you know. She puts it on because she loves the the diamonds and she thinks they look pretty and they are beautiful and her heart loves them. But I know this and you know this, what makes a wedding ring meaningful is that behind the diamond is a covenantal love. Behind the diamond is a promise between husband and wife to be faithful to one another. And the ring represents that covenant. It represents love. So you can wear it, but without the wedding, without the covenant, without the promise, it's just a ring. Communion is the diamond of God's covenantal love for us in Jesus. It's a reminder to us. It's this physical act that captures a spiritual reality. God stood at the altar, and he pledged his broken body, shed love to you and to all who have put their faith in him. And we get to enjoy the jewel every Sunday and remember the love. 
just like it would be an empty thing to put wedding rings on unmarried hands, it is an empty thing to offer communion to unrepentant hearts. So if you've paid attention on a Sunday, here's what I hope you've noticed, um, and it's not perfect every Sunday, but, but we try to be faithful, that the most clear gospel presentation to non-Christians is around communion. Sometimes it's not as clear in the sermon, but, but I know that every Sunday I've got this moment, this communion moment, that if anyone is here and they're not a believer in Jesus, I get to make this appeal. And usually what we say is, is that we're, we're making a loving distinction so that we can make a loving invitation. And we live in a world that thinks that all spiritual distinctions are wrong and unloving. Uh, so it's not popular to say that there are those who are right with God, and then there are those who are not right with God, who are far from God. But unpopular does not mean untrue, and it doesn't mean unloving. And the good news to those who are not yet a Christian or not yet right with God is that by grace through faith, God's covenantal love can be yours. You can be welcomed into that. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we love non-Christians best not by giving them a false sense of acceptance with God, but in honesty and love saying, this is not yet true about you, but it can be. In Jesus, it can be. This is also why we take communion every week. If it's an invitation from Jesus to look back in faith, how often do you need to look back in faith? How often do I need to look back in faith? So like uh, we've been talking about services and service times for years now. We could use a third service and there's not a great time to offer a third service. Um, there is this Sunday morning window where people in this area really want to go to church, and uh, it's in between 9 and 11. And so one option would be to shorten our services and try to pack three services that start between 9 and noon and just pack them all in to the morning. And one of the simplest ways to shorten services would be to not do communion every week because it takes up a lot of time. And hear me, it's just not an option. Because you know what I need more of in my life and not less of in my life? Looking back in faith on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you know what you need more of in your life and not less of in your life? Is looking back in faith on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look, I'm still a mess. I'm still a mess. Often in the week, I see myself as far from God or I see myself as outside of the love of God or I see myself as a disappointment to God or on the other side of it, I see myself as my own God or I see myself as less in need of God. And what I need really over and again is to see myself at the table with God, to look back in faith, to see the nail-scarred Savior breaking bread for me and filling a cup for me and inviting me to remember that his body was broken for me and his blood was shed for me, that I would know by faith that I am his and he is mine, regardless of the kind of week I had. And, and you need that too, sister. You need that too. And, and, if, and if part of what that means is, I, look, I would rather have a Sunday with less people if it means more space to remember Jesus. Communion is the invitation from Jesus to look back in faith. Also, it's the invitation to examine your heart. Let's read some verses in this section we haven't read yet. Look at verse 20 of chapter 11. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Lord's Supper is another word for communion. Uh, we call it here communion. Paul calls it here Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Not sure if you picked up on this. He's not very happy with the Corinthians in this passage. Verse 27 says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Here's how church most likely worked in Corinth in the first century. Most of their gatherings were not in a building like this, but they were in a home, uh, some sort of large home. And the church service didn't go like ours does. The church service was most likely centered around a meal. And it was like a potluck. Everyone would bring their own food. And the meal would begin. At the very beginning of the meal, they would take communion together. And then they would eat. And maybe there would be a teaching. Maybe somebody would sing a song. People would share a testimony of what God has done. But all of that was centered around. The context was a living room or a a large gathering space at at a wealthy person's home. Uh, and the only ones who were big enough, uh, the only homes that were big enough to, to host that would be the, the rich people in town. So you have a wealthy church member hosting church. But here's what was true about Christianity in the first century. It mostly spread among the poor and among the outcast. Um, those who heard the good news of a God who made all people in his image and sent his son to die for all humanity. And that humanity included rich and poor, slave and free, young and old, male and female. And in a world of intensified social differences, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, young and old, what they found in the gospel message was they found even ground at the foot of the cross. So a lot of people who were on the fringes of society responded in faith to the good news of Jesus. So likely the church in Corinth is made up of some wealthy people, but most are not wealthy. It's likely made up of some who had social clout and power, but most did not, but all We're on equal ground in Jesus. Here's what's happening. Instead of celebrating their shared dignity in Christ, some were intensifying the social differences. So if it's bring your own food, the rich brought a lot and the poor brought a little or nothing at all. And instead of the rich sharing their food with the poor, they kept it to themselves. So Paul says it like this. One goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. It's it's opposite ends of the spectrum. One doesn't have enough to even satisfy hunger. One has so much that they get drunk. And so some of the wealthy brought their fillets and a brand new bottle of expensive wine, and some of the poor came with little or nothing at all. One goes hungry, it probably means more than just they missed a meal. Maybe they haven't even eaten in days. Maybe they were dependent on that church meal for for life. And they would take communion. And then after they took communion, the rich would get full on food and drunk on wine while their brother or sister in Christ stayed hungry. Why would they do that? Here's what maybe we can connect with. Um, Because their heart wanted to maintain those distinctions. It feels good to have more than someone else. It feels good to be a part of the in crowd, the valuable crowd, the accepted crowd. And so outside of the church in Corinth, uh, the rich looked at the poor and said, they're different than me, they're less than me. And they come inside the church and they're still identifying, even in the church, more with who they are in the city than with who they are in Christ. They had forgotten that those that they were shunning and shaming had just as much share in the love and grace of Jesus as they did. And Paul says something harsh. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You only thought you were observing the Lord's Supper 
Like you might go through the deal, you might say the prayer. Here's what he's saying. It, didn't, it doesn't count. Like it was just bread and it was just wine. It's not what our Savior gave us. It, meaning this, this is sobering to think about. There is a condition of the heart that so betrays the spirit of communion that you'd be better off not taking it. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It does mean you're not acting like one. And he drives that home in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Well, that sounds really terrifying. What does that mean? I have no idea. Look at the next verse. I'm just kidding. Jesus is, here's what it's saying. Jesus' death is an act of self-giving love. That's his death. So he was brought to shame that we might be brought out of shame into dignity and love. Those who killed Jesus, that was an act of self-preserving hate. Out of their prideful desire to exalt themselves, they put Jesus to shame. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians Christians, when you shame the poor among you and exalt yourself, you are acting less like Jesus and more like those who killed Jesus, all while claiming to celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. So you're not honoring his death, you're, you're, you're mocking it. So here's his command. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, you, you forfeited it. Like, don't even try to ever do it again. It's too late for you. As strong as the language is, and as sinful as the behavior is, he doesn't say you can never take communion again. He says, take it. It's yours. Jesus loves you, died for you, so take it. But take it with an examined heart. Communion invites us to examine our hearts. Every Sunday, you're invited in communion to examine your heart. What might that mean for us? For them, it meant not shaming the poor, loving them the way that Jesus had loved them. What it means for us, when you, when you hold the bread and when you hold the cup, like you're going to do in just a few minutes, how do we best examine our hearts in a moment like that? There's lots of great questions to ask. Um, is there any unconfessed sin in my life is a great question. What doubts do I need to remember? Uh, do I need to name before God and ask for faith? Uh, the first thing is looking back in faith. So part of examining is remembering that we are loved, that we, we see Jesus. But if I was to draw something specifically from this passage, communion is a time to examine my heart and to be humbled again by the love of Jesus. Here's what I mean. If we believe that there was something so wrong with us that it required the sacrificial death of the perfect God-man in my place to make me right, then there is no room for me to believe that I am better than anyone else. Deeply loved, but not better than. So to hold the bread and to hold the cup is to let go of pride. So if I were to dig into that again a little bit, maybe I'm asking, who have I shunned? Who have I shamed? If communion is a table with Jesus, who's the person that I really don't want to sit next to me? A family member? Maybe some of this is fresh, having spent time with family over the holidays. Who, who, do you, who are you quick to judge hypercritical love, feel superior than, a former enemy or a former friend. Uh, maybe it's that person that's never wronged me but just really bothers me. Who have I in my heart declared to be unworthy of grace and I've declared that by withholding it from them myself, even if it's just in my mind. And what is supposed to happen, friends, goodness, brother, sister, what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to be really hard to hold on to bitterness 
and really hard to hold on to conceit and really hard to hold on to unforgiveness and to hold on to judgment and hypercriticism while also holding on to the bread that represents the body I needed broken and while holding on to the cup that represents the blood that I needed shed and I needed it just as much as the person that I feel superior to. Look back in faith. Examine your heart. Look forward with hope. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Revelation 19, 6 through 9 says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this is all the end. It's a picture of the end of what happens when Jesus returns and where he makes everything right. And then verse 9 says this, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. At the end of the story, we are at the table with Jesus, feasting with Jesus, at, at home with Jesus. Sometimes I'll have these moments where I just really wish I could see the future, like uh, around things that I care most, things that I maybe feel anxious about or concerned about. So Thursday, we were with family for Thanksgiving, and we at one point gathered around the fireplace, and we took uh, a family picture. And I will think thoughts like this. I, I don't know if it makes me weird or what, but I, I think thoughts like, what does that family picture look like 30 years from now? Like, how are my kids then? What are they like then? They would be 42, 40, and 35. What does that picture look like? Um, are they married? Do they have kids? Are we still close? Am I still alive? Is everybody okay, right? And I wish, what I wish in that moment is I wish somebody could bring me the Thanksgiving picture from, from 30 years in the future and, and show it to me and say, hey, here's what it looks like and, and show me that somehow we all still love each other and show me that somehow everybody still loves Jesus and if they have a family that their family is doing well and Carrie and I are still in love and we have a godly lineage together. Now I can pray for all those things, but nothing would give me confidence in the present like some sort of tangible sign from the future that tells me that everything will be okay. One day we will sit at a table with Jesus, what Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will all be okay we will, everything that has, has been lost will be restored and what we have suffered will be no more and we'll be face to face with Jesus and our hearts will be full and our lives will be unthreatened by any evil and we will be happily ever after with God. That's coming. Communion is the picture in the present of what is to come in the future. It's as it says, when you drink and when you eat, you proclaim his death until he comes. It's as if every Sunday Jesus himself who ordained this practice hands us the tangible sign and says everything will be okay. You will be okay. 
And what we do every Sunday is a small practice of what we will do for all of eternity, and nothing you can do will lose that, and nothing done to you will take that away. And so we look forward and hope. Let's take communion together. If you are helping us with communion this morning, you can make your way to the back and begin passing out the elements. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, I want to make a loving distinction so that I can make a loving invitation. What this means for us is simply not yet true for you. A communion is the, the diamond of God's covenantal love, and he has placed it on our hearts because we repented of our sins and trusted in him. And if you have not yet done that, we ask that you let the plate pass you by. It's not for the purpose of being exclusive or judgmental, but what this means for us is simply not yet true for you. I believe God brought you here that you might hear clearly that there is a God who loves you so much. He sent his son that his body would be broken for you and his blood would be spilled for you that you might respond in repentance and faith to that. Believer, we're going to spend some time together, extended time just reflecting in light of the passage. So I want to give time for everybody to get the cup and get the bread, and then I will lead us in taking communion in just a moment.